Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of our podcast know, each week in the Jewish communities throughout the world, a section of the five books of the Torah is read. That weekly section is called a parasha. This week, our parasha is entitled Va'era. And it is from the book of Exodus. It begins in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, and continues through chapter 9, verse 35. It is a uh, powerful expression of God's presence in the world and of God's relationship with Moses. So let me give you a brief overview. In this week's parasha, God reveals himself to Moses, employing the four expressions of redemption that are preeminent throughout the Passover Seder. We read that God says, take the children out of Israel from Egypt, deliver them from enslavement, redeem them, and acquire them as his own chosen people at Mount Sinai. He will then promise to bring them to the land that he promised to the patriarchs as their eternal heritage. Moses and Aaron repeatedly come before Pharaoh to demand in the name of the God of the Israelites to let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. Pharaoh repeatedly refuses. Aaron's staff turns into a snake and swallows the magic sticks of the Egyptian sorcerers. And then, beginning in our parasha, God sends a series of plagues upon the Egyptians. The waters of the Nile turn to blood, Swarms of frogs overrun the land. Lice infest all men and beasts. Hordes of wild animals invade the cities. A pestilence kills the domestic animals. Painful boils afflict the Egyptians. And for the seventh plague, fire and ice combine to descend from the skies as a devastating hail. Still, the text reminds us that Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he would not let the children of Israel go, as God had said to Moses. It is, as you hear just in the overview, a Torah portion that gives rise to many important questions. And with me this morning to discuss this week's parasha is one of North America's preeminent congregational rabbis. Rabbi Jonathan Stein was rabbi of Sha'arei Tefillah Congregation in New York City from July 2001 and served there until June of 2014 when he was elected as Rabbi Emeritus. Prior to that, 
He had served as senior rabbi of Congregation Beth Israel of San Diego and Indianapolis Hebrew Congregations. All three congregations are large and old established congregations. Rabbi Stein became president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis in 2011 for a two-year term. The Central Conference of American Rabbis is the principal organization of reform rabbis in North America. I want to welcome Rabbi Stein to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Welcome. Thank you. Rabbi Garten, thank you for the um, the wonderful introduction. Uh, I had forgotten um, a little bit of what you said, so <laughs> comes with aging. But you didn't tell them the most important thing. You and I are classmates. We are classmates, and Rabbi Stein was noted for taking notes in all the classes that we shared together. Uh, <laughs> and he had a photographic memory as a young person. I'm not sure he still does. Uh, in as much, in as much as he forgot where he had worked for most of his career, um, I couldn't remember the name of the of the San Diego congregation. They'll kill me, <laughs> especially since you still live there. Exactly in your retirement. Um, so let's, let's, let's turn. Yeah, go ahead. Go Rob. ahead. Well, well, I was going to say, let's just turn to the Torah portion. Good, the era. And you gave a wonderful um, summary and um, details of what happened uh, in this parasha. It's quite a, an amazing story and quite well-known story. Yes, there are very few episodes in this story that are not known to listeners or those who have an experience of growing up churched or synagogued. Um, and perhaps some of the stories are even known to others who don't practice Judaism or Christianity. Um, the beginning of our parasha really calls out for a conversation. In the very beginning, the Hebrew reads, Vayidaber Elohim el Moshe. And Elohim spoke to Moses and said to him, I am God. Ani Adonai. The Era el Avraham el Yitzchak vel el Yaakov. And I, and we're now going to discuss what it means to Vaera appeared. I appeared to them as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them by my name, Yud Hey Vav Hey which is often uh, transliterated from Hebrew to English as Jehovah or Yahweh, inasmuch as the Hebrew text doesn't often give us vowels, vocalization for that. So let's begin our conversation. What does the text mean when it says, God appeared? You know, um, that's the first thing that popped into my mind, too. The appearance of God, in this case, it starts out with, you know, God spoke to Moses. 
So in a certain way, I mean, this is God talking about the past, but it still begs for a discussion. What did God appear like? Or what was an appearance of God in the lives of our biblical ancestors? It's hard to it's know. A, it's, it's hard, hard to, to know. know. And um, you nicely massage the English. Um, <laughs> I appeared or um, what was my appearance? How was my appearance apprehended? Um, Abraham... Uh, who we're told in this verse um, was one of the patriarchs that God appeared to, um, has God speak to him uh, often through angels or messengers, but I'm not sure I would have ever said that God appeared to Abraham. Uh, I'm certainly not sure that I understand that God appeared to Isaac in the physical sense. And it's not clear to me that in the Torah stories about the second patriarch, Isaac, um, Isaac had a significant conversation with the deity at all. But with uh, Jacob, the third of the patriarchs, as you know, um, we have the dream sequences uh, and the wrestling sequence. Uh, so appearance seems to be a term that can offer to the reader many possibilities for exploration. It certainly does. The language is equivocal. It doesn't have just one meaning. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the patriarchs uh, in doing some research for today, I found a little passage that said that God spoke with Abraham, spoke, didn't say appeared. God spoke to Abraham five times. You were right about Isaac. God never speaks to Isaac at all, uh, symbolic of a whole number of other things in Isaac's life. Jacob, God spoke to Jacob three times, but after Jacob became Yisrael, no more. Only three times is Jacob. And then there's Moses and Aaron. God speaks to both of them, to the two of them innumerable times, most especially Moses. Sometimes Moses and Aaron are spoken to together, but it's almost always speech. God said, Appear is a very different word. Yes. I mean, does appear indicate a vision? Uh, yeah. in, the, in the books of prophets, uh, we certainly have a number of episodes which were categorized as visions. Uh, For sure. Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel. Um, those are mystical experiences according to Jewish tradition. But you're right. What does it mean and why pick that word at this moment in the text? I think that's an interesting question. Why, um, if the, if 
this is the introduction to the experience of uh, Moses and God uh, entering into this relationship, which will end up uh, going, forcing Moses to return to Egypt and confronting Pharaoh. Um, it's not the burning bush episode. Um, so you've asked the question, um, there's no description of what appearance is except for one small nuance here. And I'm going to ask you in your wisdom to tell us what you make of this. I did not make myself known to them by my name, Adonai, I appeared to them as El Shaddai. So now the text adds this additional uh, notion that God has multiple names and that I could appear to them as El Shaddai, but did not make myself known to them. Is that the same um, your thoughts? Um, there are a number, as you know, there are a number of different understandings of El Shaddai, first of all. El is always God. Um, Shaddai, it actually comes from the Hebrew word for a breast. And this has led in a feminist direction for, uh, for some people. But El Shaddai as God's name, is indeed set aside. The new name, yud heh vav is again a totally equivocal name. It's past, present, and future all at the same time. And, and interestingly enough, it has no gender associated with it. None. None. So, you know, there are... Um, there's another word um, or phrase in this week's Torah portion that struck me. The text talks about choshech afelah. Choshech afelah. And choshech is a, a sort of common Hebrew word meaning darkness, um, anybody who studied biblical Hebrew or any Hebrew actually would know that word. The second word, afelah, I had heard but didn't quite know what it meant. So I looked in my um, Hebrew English dictionary and I googled it and so on. And anyway, afelah also means dark or darkness. Afela has more of an implication of black than Choshech. But when you put them together, it's almost like a repetition. And um, in the Torah, always, not always, sometimes repetitions are meant to strengthen things, but they're often the same word in this case. It's a really interesting combination. It is a dark, so black, that you could touch it. So, is this darkness meant to suggest an absence of light 
or something more significant? I think the latter. Um, During the plague um, of darkness, the Israelites had light in their homes. So light never went away. But I, you know, the text doesn't say this, but in order to get Choshech Athela, that has to come from God to be able to touch air that's black. Think about it. So it's it's almost, um, you know, all of the plagues are very physical. Yes. Uh, boils and lice and water, uh, that which affects the cattle. But darkness, except with this additional Hebrew uh, term, which magnifies darkness, is the only plague in my memory that's not a physical manifestation, a physical hardship. And so it leads one to think that the plagues are intended to be more than just a physical reminder of uh, the God of the Israelites' power, but it's to be a reminder of how powerfully uh, the Israelites' God can impact on one's internal uh, consciousness. One's, uh, even though this is a God, unlike Pharaoh, whose uh, physical manifestation, the God of the Israelites, who's uh, invisible, impacts you in a physical way. I think you've called uh, to our listeners an interesting uh, aside that's often lost in the litany of the plagues. Um. What impact That's a really you? important observation. I had never connected that myself, that they're all physical. Um, in this case, I wonder, Rabbi Garten, how do you then account for the statement, so dark you could feel it or ah. touch it? This is also physical. Right. And, and I don't I, know what that means, actually. No. <laughs> I, I think we're both recognizing that sometimes the Torah uses imagery to convey something more powerful than the literal meaning of the words. Yes. Um, and when it says the darkness is such that you could touch it or feel it, I think it suggests that it rattles you to the very essence of who you are. Um, what does it mean to live in a world without light, without enlightenment? I mean, in, in, a, in a way, the conflict between Pharaoh and the God of the Israelites is a conflict between uh, idolatry that Egyptian religion represents and a new understanding of the divine presence in the universe. Um, and 
perhaps the text is suggesting the old way is like darkness and the new way will bring you light. Uh, or hadash, um, a new light. Um, and light, of course, is one of the preeminent symbols uh, as we move along in the book of Exodus. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, really good. You just need a nechemta. Yeah, I want to have that yet. I want to say one thing and then move on to another topic. Great. While you were explaining this, my mind flashed on Harry Potter and the Dementors. The Dementors, when they killed you, they sucked the life out of your body. And the image came to me of God sucking the light out of the Egyptians' homes and land. Anyway. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it opens up the imageries of Harry Potter with his lightning uh, on his forehead. Yes. Uh, And all of that symbolism, which takes us in a very different direction. But let's end our conversation with uh, the term that I know interested you, and that was Arafel Sifatayim, which is usually translated as uncircumcised lips. Uh, So what does that really mean, uncircumcised lips? Well, you know that the, the traditional understanding is that Moses had a stutter. And um, certainly by the end of his career, the whole book of Deuteronomy is a speech by him. His stuttering had gone gone away in his adult years. But when I was a child, I was a stutterer too. I think I remember the incident in my life after which I started to stutter. It wasn't very pleasant, but that's beside the point. I've always resonated with this parasha because of that with Moses. And I just want to share with your listeners a midrash. I'll try to do it quickly so that we can move on. The midrash tells the story of how Pharaoh's daughter loved baby Moses as if he were her own. Because he was so precious, everyone wanted to see him and couldn't turn away from him. Pharaoh himself hugged and kissed Moses. One day, it happened that Moses was playing on Pharaoh's lap, and he saw Pharaoh's shining crown studded with jewels, and the baby Moses reached for it, took it off Pharaoh's head, and put it on his own. Now, Pharaoh was superstitious and afraid of losing his throne, so he consulted his astrologers and magicians to interpret Moses' behavior. They said, that it meant that Moses was a potential threat to Pharaoh and that he might actually take the crown for real. Some suggested that Moses should be put to death that moment to prevent that harm. But one of the king's counselors happened to be a man named Jethro, and he was destined to become Moses' father-in-law. Jethro said, let's give him a test instead. 
bring in front of him two bowls, one filled with gold and jewels and the other with glowing coals and embers. If he reaches for the gold, he has intelligence and will execute it. If he reaches for the coals, he has no intelligence and doesn't deserve death because he went after the shiny objects like any child. So Pharaoh agreed, and the two bowls were set before Moses, one with the jewels, one with the coal. Moses reached out for the gold, like any child. But at that moment, the angel Gabriel pushed Moses' hand to the coals, and Moses grabbed one of the glowing coals. He burned his hand so badly that it flew up to his mouth so that he could uh, hydrate it a little bit, and he ended up touching the coal to his lips and tongue. His life was saved, but from that day on, he was slow of speech, heavy of mouth, and slow of tongue, traditionally a stutterer. Moses was destined to become a great orator, and it was always as if God spoke through those burnt, uncircumcised lips. It's a great story. It offers to the reader of Torah an explanation for a gap in the text, for a part of the story, a background part of the story that isn't there, which is, of course, what the purpose of Midrash is, to fill in the gaps when we read the text, that's what we've been doing this morning. Rabbi Stein and I have been trying to wrestle with the unclar- the lack of clarity in some of the words. Because on the literal level, why would God pick a stutterer? Why would God pick uh, someone whose primary responsibility will be to intercede with Pharaoh on behalf of the Israelite people, and for the next 40 years be the intercessor between God, the deity, and the people of Israel. And the text tells us that's his uh, weakness. And here we have a story that tells us, in fact, it was the angel Gabriel who ensured Moses' survival, and in fact, the stutter was not the mark of Cain, but the mark of the divine intervention into his life, a foreshadowing of how uh, the divine will intercede in Moses' life so often. Um, So I want to thank you for sharing that, and of course, thank you for sharing the little bit of your personal history. I don't know if your Hebrew name is Moses. It uh, is not. <laughs> it but, is not Moses. Yes. Okay. Um, so in the 30 seconds that we have left, I'm wondering if you want to offer a concluding comment about Vaera. Um, I go all the way back to the beginning of our session. And God appeared. Uh, Rabbi, please forgive my bad grammar. Rabbi, uh, Dr. Weinberg would kill me. Is the <laughs> I hope that the root of the era is Lerot, to see. Yes. 
Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, so then it means, and I was seen. Now this is a this is a a physical thing. To be seen is with someone else's eyes. We do have moments when people see God, especially Moses, so to speak, as a burning bush. But this one um, is, in my mind, still problematic. It makes God physical in a, in appearance. So I I I leave um, my role here by just pointing out that God appearing does not. Um, exist only in the Torah, and many people in our own lives, in our own day, also believe that God has appeared to them. It's a very difficult thing for the for many of us to figure out again what that means, especially when it leads to ideas that um, yours is the only way of understanding things because God talked to you. I'm going to have to cut you off, gotcha. uh, but I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Jonathan Stein, now of San Diego, California, in the United States. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or download it from the chri.ca website. I wish you shalom and a good day. <laughs> 